0: Now, The Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity.
1: And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of The Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review and author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, good, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, we've known this for a long time before we get to our good martini, but we uh, We've got the nicest audience in podcast land, and especially when you get nice comments on Twitter, which is exceedingly rare when you've made a mistake. So... Uh On our podcast on Friday, we were talking about the fact that Theresa May is on her way out as British prime minister. And I said one of the things that I was fretting about was whether the chaos in the conservative party uh, could be an advantage for Jeremy Corbyn uh, as he runs for prime minister. But uh, it's not till 2022, unless the government actually collapses. Uh, There are fixed terms of parliament that are five years each. So we're probably not headed towards anything like that till 2022. Hopefully, uh, there could actually still be a collapse. And given the chaos in the party, I suppose that's not out of the realm of possibility. But people very kindly corrected me on Twitter over the weekend, which I appreciate, not only the correction, but also doing it in a nice way. So uh, thanks for doing that. We appreciate that.
0: Yes. And listeners, remember who didn't correct him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Every once in a while, mistakes are made. I generally try not to do it on the day we rip Naomi Wolf for um, getting the entire (laughs) premise for her book wrong. So a little egg on the face there. If I
0: corrected you on air, we could have had another one of those (laughs) wonderful movies. But I didn't because I wasn't paying attention to that
1: either. (laughs) No worries. No worries. All right. So let's get into our first good martini. Jim, we have a wall. Not the government, not the taxpayers paying for this, but a private group, is what we're hearing from the Washington Times, announced Monday that it has constructed, not going to, has constructed a half-mile wall along a section of the U.S.-Mexico border in New Mexico in what it said was a first in the border debate. The 18-foot steel bollard wall is similar to the designs used by the Border Patrol, sealing off a part of the border that had been a striking gap in existing fencing, according to We Build the Wall, the group behind the new section. The section was also built faster and organizers say likely more cheaply than the government has been able to manage in recent years. Well, that's probably not too hard. Chris Kobach, former secretary of state in Kansas and an informal immigration advisor to President Trump, says the New Mexico project has the president's blessing and says local Border Patrol agents are eager to have the assistance. So, uh, Jim, leave it to the private sector to get something done that the government takes years and years and wastes a lot of oxygen talking about it's only a half mile long, but it's in a very critical section. And so uh, the Border Patrol is happy to have it. Hopefully that encourages uh, at least some strategic wall building, regardless of party here coming up soon.
0: Yeah. And it's worth noting, and I've written about this a couple of times for NR, you can go back to the archives and find them. So the good news is there are certain stretches where uh, parts of the fencing and and wall that have been falling down are being replaced. And they're, they're taking down stuff that's chain link that people can climb And places where there are holes in the fencing and things like that. They're putting up the new stuff, but the vast majority of it was actually already approved, already appropriated before President Trump took office. This is not stopping him from taking credit for it. This is not stopping him from saying this is the wall. I believe there's even a plaque declaring that this is the first section of President Trump's border wall to be completed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's not really, uh, I don't think necessarily would counts if you're saying they're talking about things were already approved before he took office. Um, but little efforts like this certainly do help. And I think they are an indicator. There's two good things that come out of this. The first is it does demonstrate that there are alternatives to the uh, slow-moving government bureaucracy. Uh, I'm sure President Trump and his re-election effort will be grateful for every section of wall that gets completed. Uh, he very much wants to be running for re-election on saying, if he can't say the wall is complete, um, and certainly, the, you know, it was never a matter of building, you know, despite what the president kept staying on the campaign trail, the wall just got 10 feet taller. Um, It was never going to be the Great Wall of China. It was never going to be from coast to coast, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, the entirety of the U.S. southern border. And, you know, people from the Border Patrol say they don't necessarily need that. What they need is about 500 to 600 miles worth. Over the most heavily trafficked sections, they don't need it to be complete. It's okay if there are gaps, because this means the Border Patrol can patrol those gaps, and that's where they catch them, and they return them across the border. So we are slowly getting there. And if you are one of those folks like myself who, one, believes that border security matters, two, there's an enormous amount of anger and, and almost you know, sometimes rage over this issue Um, I want to take the temperature on this issue down. You need to reassure the public that it's not going to get worse. You need to reassure the public that the border is, if not perfectly secure, then more secure and that getting into the country is difficult and it's not an open door that anybody who manages to get to Mexico can just walk across the border and end up being here. And we're getting there. And I think once that happens, once the American people have a sense that, okay, this is being dealt with first, you know, then you can you know, also, by the way, throw, you throw in e-verify, you throw in uh, checking ways to catch the people who overstay their visas and stuff like that. Then I think if you want to have a discussion about does every single person who entered the country illegally need to be deported, Uh, does Manuel the busboy at the local restaurant, is he necessarily a threat to others? Is he necessarily someone who is, uh, needs to be thrown out this very second? Maybe not. Maybe this person does have, uh, something to contribute to America, but they violated the law. And now we can have a calmer and rational discussion about what to deal with these, what to do with these people, because we don't feel like we're constantly being inundated with waves of people. So uh, good for this group. I know there have been some questions who've been wondering about it. People wondered if it was, you know, going to be, you know the money was actually going to be used towards that. This is a good start. Um, apparently, this one was more expensive than some of the other areas they want to do it for. So they may actually get more fencing and more wall up uh, in other places. So good for them. And a uh, nice little sign of, you know, the libertarians are cheering today. Another demonstration of, you know, private sector doing things that the public sector is either cannot or is very slow in
1: doing. And the one thing there is a consensus on now, Jim, is that there is a crisis at the southern border with over 100,000 people coming across each month, a lot of them claiming asylum, some of them not. And so uh, that's obviously more than we can handle. And so anything that helps to uh, organize things and uh, create more stability down there is a good thing. Let's move on to our second good martini now. And the New York Times is actually getting a little bit honest, even though they're probably wringing their hands desperately from this. The New York Times is reporting on a couple of different things. First, that Steve Ratner, a former Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration – Uh, saying that it's still the economy stupid and that the current boom times give Trump a formidable tailwind heading into 2020. uh, But he warns it's not an insurmountable one. Uh, He says, quote, the economy invariably ranks among the top issues on the minds of voters in presidential elections. At the moment, it appears to offer President Trump a meaningful tailwind. But how big is that tailwind? Fortunately, economists have worked hard to develop models for predicting election outcomes. And according to one of the best of these, it should be quite large. In its present state, the economy will also be helpful to the president. All told, Mr. Trump's vote share would ordinarily be as high as 56.1%, but that's before factoring in his personality. As recent polls show, if the election were held today, he would lose to most of the Democratic hopefuls by a substantial margin, in the case of Joe Biden, by nearly eight percentage points. It also says here that Brett Stevens warned three days earlier that the problem for Democrats isn't so much Trump as much as it is the extreme nature of the opposition and how far left they're going. So, uh, Jim, uh, the New York times being honest here, the economy when it's strong is usually a very good thing for the incumbent. And right now, uh, the Trump is the incumbent and the economy is good. Uh, but, uh, as you and I have, uh, wondered and, and, and questioned over time is the baked in opinion of Trump so entrenched that the external factors of what's going on with the economy and other things don't matter. Uh, according to Ratner, it does still matter. Greg,
0: I'm thinking back to all the different elections that you and I have discussed presidential elections Uh, that I've just, you know, analyzed and written about over the course of my career, even before I started writing in in journalism. You look back over the course of my lifetime, actually, I'm doing the math in my head right now. So I was born in 75. Gerald Ford was president. Uh, He did not get reelected, although I think we could kind of say he's kind of a unique case because he was not elected himself. Carter was not a reelected. George H.W. Bush was not reelected. Beyond that, Reagan, Clinton, Bush, Obama have all been reelected. And it's kind of, you know, it's very easy to forget. Incumbency is a huge advantage in the presidency. We're now on four of the last five, and maybe it'll be, you know, five of the last six uh, if Trump gets reelected. People, if they feel like the country's doing okay, tend to reelect presidents. And that's a nice thing for you to have if you've been elected president, uh, if the economy is continuing in the circumstances that it is right now, say, a year from now or, or a year and change, um, then in ordinary circumstances, the president of the United States would be in pretty good shape. Now, obviously, Donald Trump is not your normal president. He generates his own controversies. He generates his own problems. His approval rating is very rarely above 50 percent. Uh, he lost the national popular vote. There are all kinds of you know, things that are working against him. And so Democrats can tell themselves, yeah, the formula said that, but the formula said he should have won by a bigger margin in 2016 than he actually did. People rolled the dice on Trump and they kind of gambled with him. There's no way they can be happy with the way things are going. They'll vote for us. OK, maybe that's the case. I would also kind of there's a flip side to this, which is that usually the challenger is younger than the president. Uh, if we have Joe Biden as the nominee or if we have Bernie Sanders as the nominee, we possibly would have a challenger who is older. Um, we also, you know, we've never had a openly socialist nominee for president by one of the two major parties. I think that would represent its own challenges, uh, to the democratic party knocking off Trump. So there are a bunch of variables at work, but you know, again, it is kind of reassuring to see that, you know, based on these basic economic factors, uh, the president of the United States is likely to get reelected and then the advantages of con- incumbency are real. Now this doesn't mean that Trump is a shoe in, obviously there's a lot of road ahead, but, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's driving this Democratic primary we've been seeing is that this, this first of all, this, this terror of, of Democrats, they were absolutely convinced they were going to win in 2016. They lost, and they are shocked by it. They are just dumbfounded. They just cannot believe that that election slipped through their fingers. And they were so blindsided by that result that they kind of second-guess themselves. They don't really feel like they completely trust their instincts anymore. The Democrats are so eager for 2020. And also, I think that's why, the, you know, the bottom, I can't believe I'm saying this. 15 or so candidates, <laughs> maybe even the bottom 20, aren't really getting a serious look from a lot of Democratic voters right now. They don't want to gamble with some little known congressman or something like that. They want a reliable, safe choice. They want somebody who's going to beat Trump. Once they you know, Right now, it looks like they feel like Biden is it. That may change when the debates occur or things like that. But basically, they just want to win this and they just want to end this, in their minds this national nightmare. And I think they ought to keep in mind, knocking off an incumbent president is tough ask Mitt Romney, ask John Kerry, ask Walter Mondale. Something to keep in mind uh, for this and, uh, you know, for, for all the problems that, you know, you know, all the headaches and all the stresses that uh, Trump will generate for himself. Again, if he just emphasizes this point, he's got a very good chance of winning re-election.
1: And the fascinating thing is Biden is positioning himself as, hey, man, let's just get back to normalcy, basically plagiarizing Warren Harding. Although I shouldn't accuse him of plagiarism. He'd never do something like that. <laughs> So
0: Harding might be the only one who hasn't (laughs) played.
1: And so uh, that's the fascinating part, though, is that uh, that's probably the best argument you've got. Instead, because the Democrats once again are so sure they're going to win, they're putting pedal to the metal of. We're not just going to calm things let down. Let felons vote. Yeah, let felons vote. We're going to take away your guns. Government's going to run your health care. Boys can run in girls' track events. Uh, abortions in the birth canal. I mean, they just can't try to grab the middle at all. They have to peg as far left as possible. I get that it's the primary, but uh, they're really hurting themselves uh, for the general election, which, of course, I'm thrilled about.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, we will unite Americans of every
1: race creating color under a system of reparations for slavery all right well let's move on to our crazy martini now jim and i don't remember how long ago it was now probably a couple years ago now that the book fire and fury by michael wolf came out and it didn't take long for folks to realize that not everything in this book was exactly true in fact it led to saturn night live of all places lampooning michael wolf this is uh nbc of course and You've got uh, Fred Armisen as Michael Wolfe, and one of the cast members is Willie Geist here, basically talking about all the problems in the book.
0: Now, Michael, there's been several errors pointed out in this book already. Do you take responsibility for those? Look, you read it, right? Yeah. Yeah, of yeah.
1: course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you liked it. You had fun. I-
1: yeah. Yeah. But I- oh, what's the problem? You got the gist, so shut up. <laughs> You know, even the stuff that's not true, it's true. All right. Well, Michael Wolf has a new book out, Jim, and the uh, fact-finding is turning out to be pretty much the same already. It's not even out yet. Uh, This is the Daily Mail. The author of last year's biggest bombshell political bestseller claims in his new book that Special Counsel Robert Mueller drafted a three-count obstruction of justice indictment against President Donald Trump, but decided not to pursue it. Michael Wolff's first anti-Trump tome, Fire and Fury, largely fell apart under the withering eye of fact-checkers and his own admission that he included stories he believed were untrue. A week before book number two, Siege, hit stores, Muller's spokesman Peter Carr, known in Washington mostly for holding his tongue, says flatly that this marquee claim is false. Wolf writes that his claim is based on internal documents given to me by sources close to the office of the special counsel. The Guardian reported Tuesday that it has seen them, but Carr insisted in an email to the DailyMail.com that the documents described do not exist. So, Jim, I have a feeling... That the source close to this investigation might work for um, Buzzfeed
0: <laughs> <laughs> it would make sense, considering how Buzzfeed had famously reported that. Or uh, I believe it, it was a McClatchy newspaper news service that said that uh, kept insisting that Michael Cohen had met with some Russian source in Prague, even after Cohen had shown his passport and said he'd never been to the Czech Republic. Even after the Mueller, it didn't, didn't show up in the Mueller report. It's you know, you know, but apparently they stand by their sources. Well, if your sources told you BS, you really shouldn't. <laughs> you, know, you, you should be angry at them. You shouldn't be rushing to defend them. Um, but I just want to let's imagine this scenario described by Michael Wolf. By the way, uh, Greg, does it say whether the new Wolf book will be shelved in the fiction or nonfiction section? <laughs> it did not say. Hey, you know, we need some sort of third section for something that kind of gets murky. Some of it might be true, might not. By the way, Between New Scorpions will be kind of the fiction section um, of Amazon, if you want to pre-order that. Um, but no, so let, let's imagine this scenario that, that Michael Wolfe is describing. Mueller and his team, they do their extensive research. They put together and they say, all right, that's it. We have three counts of obstructing justice, corruptly influencing, obstructing, and impeding a pending proceeding before a department or agency of the United States. And he tampered with a witness on that second count, and he retaliated to go into the witness in the third count. They put it all together, they have it typed up, and not only that, they, they expect because people are going to argue you can't indict a president, they have got a memorandum of law opposing an anticipated motion to dismiss. Mueller puts all of this together, and somehow, despite every single reporter in all of Washington wanting to know this, this does not leak. He puts it all together, the staff is there, and then Mueller says, Nah, never mind. <laughs> You know, this be a lot of, It's going to get rejected. What's the point? So I know you put a lot. I know you worked weekends. I know you stayed up late, burning the midnight oil on this. But you know, it's it's just you know we're not going to file it. And I know, by the way, nobody talk about this. Nobody said we're not <laughs> we're not putting this in the Mueller report. We're we're leaving all this stuff out. We'll, we'll discuss the topic, but we're not going to say, oh, by the way, we've kept, you know we, we we prepared three charges against the president of the United States because we concluded he broke the law on these three separate occasions. They decide not to do it, but somebody in the room, somebody who, somebody in the room where it happens, as they sing in, in Hamilton, says, all right, I'm upset about this. Mueller's making the wrong decision. We should be indicting the president. And then of all the reporters in all of Washington, this person chooses to tell Michael Wolf. <laughs> the one guy who has already been disgraced for making up stuff and claiming that, you know, the, the kooky stuff about uh, uh, Nikki Haley having an affair with Trump and all that. Let's go to the one reporter who's disgraced. Like, if you're Trump, this is the best possible scenario because Michael Wolf saying it automatically makes people more skeptical than it actually happened. Maybe, you know, this, if that's the only scenario where this makes sense, which it actually did occur, and this is the Trump team putting out, say, how could we discredit this report instantaneously? <laughs>
1: Oh, Jim, this is great news for you. This is fantastic news for you. Look what we've talked about in the last uh, few days here. We've got Naomi Wolf with the whole premise of her book tossed out. We've got <laughs> Michael Wolf being shot down by the special counsel's office, which only speaks up when egregiously false reporting happens. And then you've got between two scorpions. Folks, I think the choice <laughs> is clear here. I was going to say, look, by process of elimination, every <laughs> other
0: book coming out this summer, you should not read. No, really? I, it, it actually, the other thing that's genuinely interesting about this will be whether this does turn into a bestseller, whether this does get this huge reaction. Because when the first book came out, there really was this, you know, wow, you know, I mean, you know, when, when Wolf says you could imagine these things happening or these things sound plausible, yeah, well, yeah, Trump's a very unpredictable guy. But that's not the standard of journalism. Could have happened. It's not really the measuring stick you want by this, you know, what's supposed to be this explosive blockbuster about how things really work in the White House. And there was, you know, uh, look, is it, you know, I mean, there's the issue of is Wolf telling the truth about what he's being told? And the second thing is, are the people talking to Wolf? Do they really know what they're talking about? Are there other sources accurate and things like that? There was a lot of speculation that Steve Bannon was one of the sources. He apparently was quoted on the record a bunch of times. And in fact, people may recall Bannon mocking the Trump kids is one of the things that led to his ouster from the White House. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, I'm hoping this sequel flops and it's not just sheer author competition that has me doing that. I hope that there is consequence for Wolf making up this kind of stuff, but, uh, but let's also remember, I, I didn't want to fe- make you fetch the audio for that one, Greg. Let's also remember at one point, Michael Wolf starts getting challenged, and I think it was an Australian radio station or a television station or something, where they start confronting him about all the people who have come out and said, no, what Michael Wolf is saying is not true, I was in the room, yada, yada, yada. And then Michael Wolf, you know, when confronted with evidence that people who he claimed were his sources were denying it, he begins to say, I, I'm sorry, I can't hear you very well. I'm, I think we're having some audio trouble. <laughs> Uh, and so the the host says, can you hear me now? And Wolf responds, no, I can't. <laughs> Raising the question of, if you can't hear him, how did you know what he asked? So Michael Wolf very well may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. But, uh, but it will be interesting to see what the reaction is. Um, so I guess to say, you know, look, I have fiction competition this summer. Should be the upshot. <laughs>
1: Well, that may be true, but let me have you answer your own question here, Jim, based on what we've seen with the press, whether it's Kavanaugh or the Covington kids or uh, Smollett, whatever. Uh, do you honestly think that the mainstream media is going to be able to stay away from salacious anti-Trump material regardless of whether it's true? You know, probably not, although I do think, again, I don't think the sales will be as
0: high. You, can, you know, fully once, shame on you. We won't get fooled again, as the president <laughs> President George W. Bush used to say. I, I, I do think there'll be, you know, again, because when, when Wolf appeared, he'd written primarily like media biographies and things like that. He was not known as a fabulous. I'd like to think the reaction to this one would be on par if Stephen Glass came out with a big expose, uh, or Jason Blair, or some other person who'd been, you know you know, found making up stories, fudging stories, things like that. So hopefully we'll see... Uh, a little bit of a consequence for this or just sheer exhaustion, because I believe it'll be in the you realize that, you know, exposés of the Trump presidency and or tell all White House autobiographies. They basically now have their own section at Barnes and Noble, Greg. <laughs> the, the shelves are creaking under the weight of them under I, too, worked at the Trump White House. And my God, was it chaotic? You know, uh, I think it was Christopher Buckley who said the subtitle of every single Washington memoir is
1: basically. If only they had listened to me. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Everything would have been fine. Jim, uh, good start to the week. And uh, let's do it again tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to pre-order Jim's new book, Between Two Scorpions. Also, if you like the Three Martini Lunch and you listen on iTunes, give us a nice review. And you can uh, listen to us on Alexa and the other uh, home devices that the government uses to snoop on you. Just kidding. Maybe. Uh, But, you know, uh, the Google Home and Alexa, all that good stuff. Uh, You can now just say, play the Three Martini Lunch podcast. And it'll come right up. So that's pretty cool. And anyway, join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.